Please take your Bible and turn to the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. Today we continue our sermon series entitled Once Upon a Time, the Beginning of the Four Gospels. We have already taken note of how Mark and Luke launched their gospel story. And this morning, I want us to consider Matthew's Christmas story. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 18. I'll read through verse 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus, because... He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until uh, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The Gospel of Matthew is a bridge book that leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I think this is why Matthew is the first book in your New Testament canon. It has long been said that the Old Testament is a book of promise and the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. And Matthew employs the term fulfilled at least 15 times in his gospel. He begins in good Old Testament fashion by giving us a genealogy. He traces the line and lineage of Jesus from Abraham to the Christ. There are 42 generations in all. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. There are 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. There are 14 more generations from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Jesus. Matthew is a Jewish believer speaking to a Jewish audience. The purpose of his writing is to prove and persuade that Jesus is Christ. Not only does he have the line and lineage, but he has the pedigree. He has the genealogy. Look at his line, but also look at his life. He is the only one who can be called Jesus Christ, long-awaited Messiah. And so Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So in Matthew's gospel, uh, he makes reference to 129 Old Testament passages he also makes reference to 29 prophecies of which Jesus fulfills perfectly. Matthew probably wrote this gospel no later than 70 AD, probably sometime in the 60s. Matthew was a tax collector by trade. You may recall that he was one of the original 12. Elsewhere in the gospel, he is simply called Levi, the tax collector. 
To say that he's a tax collector is to say that he would have been despised by his own countrymen. They would have regarded him as a traitor and a thief. For the Jewish people regarded all tax collectors as traitors because the Roman government employed some of, the, some of their Jewish people to extort money from Jewish individuals. And so Jewish people saw individuals like Matthew as a traitor. He's a sellout. He had given himself to the services of the Roman Empire. And not only had he done that, but he, like every other tax collector, always tried to take more money than was required so that he could pad his own pocket. There were no rules and regulations that would limit how much money Matthew could extort from his parishioners and from the other countrymen that lived around him. So he would try to get as much money as possible. He was as underhanded as anybody else. But you may recall that one day Jesus went by his tax collecting booth and said to Levi, come, follow me. And Levi, whose name was later changed to Matthew, dropped everything and followed hard after Christ. I think that Matthew writes this gospel to tell his Jewish cohorts, if Jesus can transform my life, he can transform your life. I am convinced, Matthew says in his words, and uh, by the writing of his gospel, that this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. So Matthew writes this gospel predominantly to Jewish listeners so that they might be persuaded that Jesus is Christ. He has the right pedigree. He has the right line and lineage. He is from the correct tribe. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So he writes to declare that this is King Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus includes nearly 50 names. You could say that Matthew chapter 1 is stuffed with names. But I want to give you three additional names that Matthew gives us for Jesus in our passage, he says that Jesus is Christ. He secondly says that Jesus is Savior. And third and finally, he says that Jesus is Emmanuel. When you and I consider that Jesus is Christ, the word Christ reveals something about its prominence. To say that Jesus is Savior, it communicates something about his purpose. To speak of Jesus as Emmanuel signifies that Jesus is the fulfillment of all promise. So our story begins by simply declaring that Jesus is Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. For Matthew to call Jesus Christ is to call him the long-awaited Messiah. We said before that Christ is not the last name of Jesus, as if somehow he was born to Mary and Joseph Christ. No, Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. And whether it's the Greek word, Christos, or whether it's the Hebrew transliteration, Messiah, both words mean the very same thing, that he is Christ, he is Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the long-awaited king. This is King Jesus. He is King of the cosmos. To say that Jesus is Christ is to say the greatest theological statement you can make for the most powerful statement that can come from your lips is that two-word phrase, Jesus Christ. When you declare Jesus Christ, you are declaring with Matthew that Jesus is long-awaited Messiah. He is the hope of the ages. He is the bright and shining morning star. This is Jesus. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He is undeniable. 
undeniable. He is unmistakable. He is irresistible. He is Jesus the Christ. Matthew will communicate to his audience that this Jesus, he is one who is more righteous than Noah, who built an ark for his family and the animals in the worldwide flood. That Jesus is one who is more faithful than Abraham, who left Ur of the Chaldeans, looking for a city whose builder and foundation belongs to God. And this Jesus is one who is more gracious than Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and yet he still ministered to his family in time of need. This Jesus is stronger than Moses, for Moses went down and liberated the people of God from their Egyptian captivity. Jesus is one who is more powerful than Elijah, and Elijah called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Jesus is more convicting than the prophet Nathan, who after David's escapade with Bathsheba, it was Nathan who said to him, thou art the man. This Jesus is more daring than Daniel, who found himself in the lion's den. This Jesus is more devoted than Hosea, who went down to the red light district, got his adulterous wife Gomer on more than one occasion just to prove how faithful he was. This is Jesus. He's in a class all by himself to the point that John will say he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. The apostle Paul will say he is the image of the invisible God. He literally holds all things together. St. Peter will simply say this Jesus is our living hope. And Matthew this morning just reminds us that this is how the birth of Jesus who is called the Christ came about because Jesus is Christ. To speak of Jesus as Christ is to say something about his prominence. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He says this Jesus is Savior. Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, but before they came together in holy matrimony, it became obvious that Mary was pregnant. She tried to convince her fiancé that she had done nothing wrong, that what was conceived inside of her was from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph is described as a righteous man, and I also think that he is a reasonable man. To say that he is righteous is to say that he's morally upright, he's blameless, he is holy in the sight of God. To say that he's reasonable is to say that he knows it takes two to tango. And he understands that he is not the baby's daddy. And so he assumes that this scandalous scenario can only be the result of Mary messing around on him. So he thought to himself, uh, I will divorce her quietly. It may sound odd to you for me to tell you that Mary and Joseph had to be divorced even though they weren't married, yet they were engaged. In the days of antiquity, an engagement was a legally binding agreement so that the engaged couple, they could not live together. They were not to engage in sexual union together until their wedding night. But even though uh, they weren't husband and wife, many times they were referenced as husband and wife. And to break an engagement required a legal action. Joseph had set in his mind that he would divorce Mary quietly, which means he wants to do his best to settle out of court. He doesn't want to bring additional disgrace and shame upon Mary and her family. That's not needed. He says to himself, I'll just dismiss her 
quietly. Nobody could blame him for his thought process. In fact, Joseph is very gracious by wanting to divorce her quietly. And I think he would have done it had it not been for that angel. We were told that one night, while Joseph was asleep, an angel came to visit him. And the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She is not lying. What's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What I find interesting is that this is the first of three angelic visitations to Joseph in the first couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel. We read of this angelic visitation in chapter 1, verse 20. The second one comes in chapter 2, verse 13. The third and final one comes in chapter 2, verse 19. All three of them have to do with the safe arrival and the safety of the Christ child. And on this first occasion, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, What's conceived inside of Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Friend, as Christians, we adamantly affirm the virgin birth. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the deity of Christ. It is to call into question the trustworthiness of the Bible. It is to dismiss all of God's miracles. If you and I deny the virgin birth, we are denying much of our Christian faith. For if the virgin birth is not true, and Jesus is not the God-man, but merely a man, then he is formed out of the normal union of a man and a woman. And if Jesus is a mere mortal, then his death on the cross does not cover anybody's sin. It doesn't cover any of our sins. But yet, I want to tell you that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human. Uh, he's not a 50-50 split. He's not an 80-20 split. He is 100% divine and 100% human. He has to be the God-man in order to die on the cross for our sins. He has to be completely human so that he can be our substitute. And he has to be completely divine or completely God so that he can be a suitable substitute for us. So he can offer the right sacrifice for us. Only God could wash away all of our sins. Only God could sacrifice himself so that he would die in our place. Jesus has to be the God-man. The Christ child in the cradle is the God-man on the cross. So that you and I can say... That from the Father's perspective, that God Almighty was thinking about Christmas and Calvary simultaneously. Because Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully human. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the deity of Christ. But it carries even more weight than that. To deny the virgin birth is to call into question the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament declare that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And so if it didn't happen like that, then the Bible's not reliable. But I came this morning just to tell you that the Bible is reliable. It is trustworthy. 
Something is not true merely because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. It it doesn't just make it true because you read about it in the pages of Holy Scripture. No, it's in the pages of Holy Scripture because it is true. It is eternal truth. It is absolute truth. That the reason it finds its way in the Bible is because it is gospel truth. And so the Bible declares in Old and New Testament that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So you can trust the reliability of God's Scripture. But also, if the virgin birth is denied, then all miracles become unbelievable. Because if we don't believe this miracle, then who in their right mind would believe any of the miracles that come after this one? If this virgin birth miracle is not true, then how do you affirm the feeding of the 5,000 with a couple of crackers and a few sardines? If this miracle is not true, then how do you remotely believe that Jesus could unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes, walk on the water, turn water into uh, turn water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? If you don't believe those miracles, then how can we affirm the quintessential miracle which took place on that first Easter morning after the death and burial of Jesus Christ, that the tomb is empty and that Jesus has been raised from the dead? If the virgin birth is not true, then how can we affirm the empty tomb? My friend, I came this morning just to remind you once again that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is reliable, that as Christians, we adamantly affirm the virgin birth. Why? Because the deity of Christ is at stake. The trustworthiness of the Bible is at stake. And the believability of the miracles of God are right there hanging in the balance. And I, for one, affirm that Jesus is Christ all by himself and that God is not a liar the angel said to Joseph what is conceived inside of her is miraculously from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son that statement teaches us and reminds us that Jesus was born in very natural ways he was conceived supernaturally but he was born in very natural ways she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There's our word Savior. The literal word Savior is not found in the text, but Jesus means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. And for anyone who doesn't know the meaning of it, Matthew gives us the definition, for he will save his people from their sins. Don't ever forget that the reason Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth was for your salvation. This reveals the purpose of Jesus. Why did he come? Why did God carry him down that heavenly staircase in maternity clothes? The reason was because God longs to save you. The reason Jesus came was not for condemnation, but for salvation. Jesus did not come to judge us. Jesus did not come to condemn us as if that's even possible because we're already condemned. The reason Jesus came was to save us from that condemnation. Jesus came for the purpose of salvation. You remember what the angel said to the shepherds on the hillside? 
I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you recall what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? For the Son of Man came not to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation through him. Do you recall what the Apostle Peter said to the Sanhedrin? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to heaven, given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is the name Jesus the Christ. And do you recall what Paul said to his son of the ministry, Timothy? When he said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The purpose of Jesus is one of salvation. So can you imagine what heaven did on that starry night when Jesus safely arrived in that manger? They must have celebrated. Why? Because they knew that salvation was near. Salvation had come. Can you imagine when any person places faith in Jesus Christ and they go from no faith to faith, death unto life? Can you imagine the celebration that goes on in heaven as the Father and the angels rejoice over one who had received salvation? Oh, don't ever miss in all the hustle and bustle and chaos of Christmas that the reason Jesus came was because we needed salvation. And Jesus came to save us. We were lost, and he came to find us. Have you ever lost anything of value? It may not be all that valuable to anybody else, but it sure is valuable to you. Have you ever lost anything of tremendous value? I recall a story that now is 12 years old. At that time, Jane Ellen's grandparents lived in Middlesboro, Kentucky. And Jane Ellen and I and the children went down to Granny and Papa's house to celebrate Christmas. We caravaned down as a family. There were several cars, there were numerous cousins. Jane Ellen's parents were with us in a different vehicle. We, we made our way down. We had a great afternoon celebrating Christmas, giving gifts and receiving gifts. We packed everything up, went back into the car. We had driven about two hours. We had stopped to eat dinner at Moe's Restaurant. And then when we were about to separate uh, and go our own separate ways so everybody could go to their various home. The unthinkable happened. It was in that moment that we realized that Molly Grace, who at that time was five years old, Molly Grace had lost one of the shoes to her American Girl doll. <laughs> we had a meltdown in Moe's parking lot. What makes matters worse is that this outfit for the American Girl doll had just been given to Molly Grace just a few hours earlier at Christmas. And Molly Grace, who was five years old, she was distraught. Now keep in mind um, that her mother and father, me and Jane Ellen, 
had wisely told her, you may not want to open up the package because if you open up the package, you might lose something that's in that package. She threw caution to the wind. She failed to listen to her very young yet extremely wise parents. And we discovered that the shoe was missing. And so in that moment, uh, everything went chaotic. Uh, Molly Grace is crying. And Nathan, who is two years old at the time, he starts crying, uh, really for no reason other than the fact that Sissy's crying, so he needs to cry. And so the grandparents, Jane Ellen's mom and dad who are with us, they're trying to console, and mama is upset, and daddy ain't very happy either. And so in this moment, I start looking everywhere. I look in the car, on top of the car, underneath the car. I get down on that cold December asphalt, and I begin to look underneath all the vehicles, trying to find where is that blasted shoe? Somebody said, you know, you may need to retrace your steps. So I went back into Moe's. And you know, when you go into Moe's, they always say, welcome to Moe's. This time I was not in a welcoming spirit. I just walked right in. I went to the table. I looked on the table, under the table, around the table. I even lifted up the trays of the nice new family that had taken seat at the table. And I started looking around for that shoe. Couldn't find the shoe. I remember that Molly Grace went to the bathroom. So then I retraced the steps. I went to the men's restroom. It wasn't there. I even went to the women's restroom. And yes, I knocked on the door. I went into the women's restroom and I couldn't find it either. Do I need to tell you that the rest of the trip home was miserable? <laughs> Molly Grace is crying, Nathan is crying, Mama's upset, and I'm just fuming, right? And so we finally get back to the house. At that time, we lived in Owenton, Kentucky. We put the children to bed, probably better stated. We threw them into bed. And Jane Ellen said, I'm going to go look one more time in the car. I said, baby, there's no reason to do that. I looked three times. I looked in the back seat and the front seat and every car seat. I looked in the floorboard and the dashboard. I looked everywhere. There's really no reason. She insisted. I said, okay, you go ahead and look. She took a flashlight out and she began to look. She looked into one of those side pockets. Now, I'd already looked in the side pocket three times. And what to her wondering eyes should miraculously appear? But the little shoe. That little shoe was tucked right down there. I'm telling you what, there was singing and there was dancing in the streets of Owenton, Kentucky that night. I mean, we were celebrating, hooping and hollering. I think that even, if I remember correctly, that the, that the sky opened up, that a bright light from heaven shone down, the angels descended and began to sing the hallelujah chorus. I mean, we were really celebrating. And as I reflect on this, I think to myself how silly it was to celebrate the fact that we found a silly shoe. Can you imagine the celebration that heaven has as they rejoice when one silly, sinful soul is found? When somebody places exclusive faith in Jesus Christ to declare that Jesus is Savior. He is the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He is the only sufficient Savior for the entire universe, whether it's Jew or Gentile. When somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, can you imagine the celebration when one silly, sinful soul comes to faith in Christ? Don't ever forget that Jesus is Savior. The reason he came 
was to save you. What does he save you from? Oh, he saves you from condemnation. He saves you from God's rightful wrath that should be poured out against you for all of eternity. He saves you from your sin. He saves you from yourself. He saves you because of his benevolence, his mercy, and his kindness. But don't ever forget that the reason Jesus came, his purpose, was salvation. What's conceived inside of her will come from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's a third name that Matthew gives us, and this third name is particular to Matthew. It's Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke up from his dream, and immediately he responded in obedience. He took Mary home to be his wife. He had no sexual union with her until after the Christ child was born. He gave him the name Jesus, just like the angel told him. This is the first time that Matthew uses the word fulfill, that all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. They'll give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As I think about the life of Joseph, I am always impressed with his immediate obedience. He doesn't walk across the stage often. But whenever he does walk across the sacred stage, you always see him being obedient to God. It's here in chapter 1. It'll happen again in chapter 2, verse 13, when the angel says, uh, take him out of Israel into Egypt. And then it'll happen again in chapter 2, verse 19, when the angel says, now take him back uh, to Israel. And he settles in the place called Nazareth in Galilee. And all, all the time, Joseph is immediate in his obedience. You know, Joseph learned the art of a disciple. A disciple lives a life of reducing the lag time. You know what lag time is? Lag time is the amount of time between knowing what you ought to do and actually doing it. And every time you see Joseph, he reduces the lag time so that he hears what he ought to do and he immediately does it. I wonder how many of you look like Joseph. There are times that I don't look like Joseph. There are times that uh, I have not reduced lag time. But isn't that the goal? That when God, by his spirit, tells you to do something, that you immediately respond in obedience, reducing the lag time? There may be somebody here this morning that just simply needs to reduce the lag time. You're in a relationship that is ungodly. And you need to break up with your boyfriend, break up with your girlfriend, remove yourself from that toxic relationship. You know you need to. The Spirit of God has told you to do it, but you haven't done it so far. Why? Because you need to reduce the lag time. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to share the gospel with a lost family member or a coworker, or a business partner or a neighbor. You know you need to do it, but why haven't you done it yet? You, today you need to reduce the lag time and just simply be obedient to the Spirit's call. Maybe somebody's here who has received a lot in order to be a blessing to others. And you know that you need to be generous with your resources when it comes to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or when it comes to giving your year-end gifts here at the life and work of the church. And you know you need to, but you haven't already. What do you need to do? Just reduce the lag time. Just today, be immediately obedient to the call of God upon your life.
This is Joseph. Joseph wakes up and he immediately takes Mary home to be his wife and she gives birth to Jesus. And Matthew reminds us that he is Emmanuel, God with us. This speaks to how Jesus is the fulfillment of promise. This idea of Emmanuel, God with us, it forms bookends around Matthew's gospel. We read of it here in chapter 1. We also see it in chapter 28, the very last chapter. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he meets his disciples there on the mountain. He gives them the great commission. As you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. For surely I am with you always. That's Emmanuel. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This idea of Emmanuel, God being with us, is, is a pretty big deal for Matthew. Because Matthew sees in this the fulfillment not only of that promise, but all promises that Jesus fulfills every promise of the Old Testament, that Jesus fulfills every prophetic utterance of Messiah. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all promises that God has ever given. And my friend, can you think of a greater promise than Emmanuel? God with us? The one promise that helps me in life more times than not is that reminder where God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes the Spirit of God just whispers that in my ear. Because like you, there are times I have bad days. And in those bad days, it's the Spirit of God that reminds me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't know of a greater promise than that. God's abiding presence always being with us. For the shepherd of the, of the sheep promises, I will not abandon you. I will accompany you even in the deep, dark valley of the shadow of death. You will never be alone. I will always be with you. And because of Jesus, we find the fulfillment of that promise, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is the fulfillment not just of that promise, but all promises. Because he is Christ. That speaks of his prominence. He is Savior, that speaks to his purpose. And he is Emmanuel, which reminds us that he fulfills all the promises of God. Matthew is a Jewish believer writing to a Jewish audience, hoping to prove and persuade that this Jesus, he's Messiah. He is King Jesus. Matthew is arranged on five teaching passages that the king, Jesus himself, gives in various ways. And everything in his gospel points to the reality that Jesus is king, not just of Jew, but also Gentile. Matthew won't get out of chapter 2 without showing us how Gentile Persian kings travel from the east and they come to worship him. Why? Because this Christ child is the God-man. He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration. He is the sole sovereign Savior of humanity. And he's Jesus. He is king. One of my preaching professors was a man by the name of Haddon Robinson. And Dr. Robinson would always tell us, uh, you can only do two things with Jesus. You can either receive him or reject him, but you can't ignore him. There's only two things that people can do with King Jesus. You can receive him 
Or you can foolishly reject him, but you can't ignore him. Matthew adamantly says, this is King Jesus, and you need to receive him. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to receive King Jesus. Today's a great day for your salvation. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to receive King Jesus and reduce the lag time in your life. Today's a great day for you to respond in immediate obedience unto Christ. Maybe there's somebody here who just needs to surrender and receive King Jesus in one way or another in their life. Today will be a great day for you to do that. Remember this Jesus. He is Christ. He is Savior. He is Emmanuel. King Jesus has come. Won't you trust him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Lord, thank you for the gospel of Matthew. Thank you, Jesus, that you are king. You're not declared king. You are king. You you are king from eternity past to eternity future. And this day, we just acknowledge what heaven has declared upon you for all the ages. You are king. So there may be somebody here who needs to receive King Jesus in their life. There may be somebody here who needs to reduce the lag time under the instruction of King Jesus. There may be somebody here who just needs to surrender themselves fully and completely under the authority and the rulership of King Jesus today, Lord Jesus. Help us to receive you as king. In Jesus' name, amen.